Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I am joined today with my esteemed colleague, Jill Brooking. We are both with the uh, Benefits Compliance Department of NFP, and we do these podcasts to try to share with you information that's happening on health reform and other things that touch you as an employer and your employee benefits plan. So Jill is going to moderate the call today. Jill, we're so excited to have you with us. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm excited to be here. Today, we are going to hit on several issues on a bit of a higher level uh, that remain relevant for the health insurance market. They impact employers indirectly, but they are important nonetheless, as Suzanne was explaining. So let's start with President Trump's latest executive order relating to health insurance. Suzanne, tell us more about that. So this is the executive order that was actually released in October, and uh, the President Trump at that time had at that time had taken uh, action to try to expand access to association health plans and allow the sale of insurance across state lines. So the idea here is that the the association health plans themselves could have uh, members across state lines. And we have talked about, I'm going to call them AHPs, um, in prior podcasts. They certainly have a torrid history with solvency issues and with many of them going bankrupt. And so it leaves kind of a bad taste in the mouth for many people and concern, certainly. Uh, for example, if you look at some of their worst years, which were between 2001 and 2003, there were four long-standing self-insured AHPs that were of significant size that became insolvent. And so it left $48 million in medical claims unpaid and about 66,000 people without insurance. So that's the backdrop that they are working against, and, and you will certainly hear uh, those things brought up as opposition to allowing more flexibility with association health plans. But currently what we have are many states do permit them. They require, as well as ERISA, a commonality of interest in order for the employers to come together to purchase insurance. And they are also, by the way, considered MIWAs under ERISA, which is obviously a multiple employer welfare arrangements. You will see that in most state laws, they discourage the plans from being self-insured and certainly... uh, impose greater structure and governance over those self-insured plans for the fears that I mentioned earlier of them being coming uh, insolvent. They also discourage employer participation across state lines. And so what this order does is it asks the DOL to propose regulations that permit both practices, both selling across state lines and loosening the boundaries from who can join a plan. Uh, it asks them specifically to review the definition of commonality of interest Uh, again, so that more people can join these AHPs. It would allow employers to join an AHP and be rated as a large group, which is kind of the key here. Then instead of you have a small employer, they can now join a larger group in in an AHP and and be subject to those plans that are offered in the large group market instead of the small group market, escaping uh, many of the mandates that are in the small group market and that many say drive up the cost of the plans in the small group market, such as community rating and essential health benefits. So other than the insolvency issue you mentioned, what else are opponents concerned with? One of the things that you will hear opponents say is that they are concerned that AHPs, if the eligibility is broadened, more people can join they will siphon off the healthy individuals, the healthy small groups, and what will be left in the individual in the small group market will be those who are sicker. This obviously will drive up the premium cost for the non-AHPs. 
And so it becomes a bad spiral. And, and that's generally one of the concerns that you'll hear. On the other side, proponents will say, as I mentioned, we should see lower cost because the plans will not have to meet the various mandates in the small group market. There will be more flexibility in plan design. They will have greater buying power, uh, similar with as large groups will with and negotiating with carriers. Um, and so their plan overall will be able to take on a different look. I would say from a regulatory oversight perspective, that's probably my greatest concern. It's not entirely clear right now how that will work, like which portions of the oversight will be conducted at the federal level by the DOL, what will be left to the states. Uh, you have, for example, an AHP that will cross state lines if there are consumer protection laws that are still applicable. Which state law applies? Is it where the plan is issued? Is it where the individual resides? Um, what will there be solvency requirements for a self-insured plan? So there's, uh, we certainly don't want to see them take the path that many MIWAs took in the past and that other AHPs took in the past of going down the line of becoming bankrupt. So we do want oversight. Uh, we do want some governance. We just don't know what that looks like, and we'll have a better sense of how all of this change affects the market once the regulations are actually drafted and released. Great. And the executive order also addressed short-term limited duration insurance and HRAs. We won't focus on the limited duration policies today, but tell us about the order's changes to HRAs. So the, the order did expand the availability of HRA so to allow employees to use their HRA funds to purchase individual coverage. As you know, HRAs are funded entirely by employers, uh, and currently large employers uh, are required to have an integrated major medical plan in place that's integrated with the HRA in order to offer it, and HRAs currently cannot be used to reimburse the cost of individual policy premiums. And so that was a that's a deterrent for some employers to implement an HRA. Um, some wanted to implement an HRA and not a, a group health plan and just fund these um, with the idea that it could possibly uh, equal something for an employer mandate coverage, which uh, that would require additional changes as well. So I don't think that that change will be made. I think that this will be more attractive to small employers who may not have a group health plan but still want to provide some type of funding for their employees. Um, and so it's not going to be required. Obviously, it will be a matter of plan design on whether employers want to allow it. But keep in mind that this order itself doesn't change anything other than give guidance to those departments that are uh, applicable, so the DOL and the IRS. They will have to propose the changes, and the, the changes to the regulations, which will have to go through your standard rulemaking process. Uh, that includes comments, for example. So it's a lengthy process. We will watch for those changes as they develop and watch for those regulations. But it's still good news for some employers. Yeah, that is an issue that directly impacts employers, so we'll watch for more development there. Let's switch gears to the bipartisan health reform proposal, proposals. Right. <laughs> yes, I mean, as, as Congress moves on to uh, focusing on tax reform and, and really what the news cycle is, is focusing on now, we still have Senator... Alexander, Republican, who's the chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, the HELP Committee, and Senator Murray, who's a Democrat, who's the ranking member of the HELP Committee. They are continuing to advocate and to push for um, their bill to be brought to the floor, and that bill is called the Bipartisan Health Care Stabilization Act of 2017, and it is designed to really 
uh, provide some short-term fixes to stabilize that individual health insurance market, and especially given the fact that uh, the Trump administration has said that they will no longer uh, pay the cost-sharing subsidies as they have in the past. So this bill has 24 co-sponsors, 12 Republicans and 12 Democrats, nicely evenly divided. And it will continue the cost-sharing subsidies for two years, and it also will give states greater flexibility with those Section 1332 waivers that allow states to request um, changes to mandates under the ACA. Perhaps it could be uh, how essential health benefits are defined in their state. Um, some things, some changes to try to drive down the cost of the insurance sold in their state. So it allows greater flexibility there and then requires those cost-sharing payments to be to continue for two years to really allow time for, for greater review of what needs to be done overall in the marketplace and with health reform. The senators did recently relist a, a, a list of 200 groups who support it. So clearly, they're trying to keep some focus there, even though the focus has changed. And then separately, there was a bicameral group of congressional leaders. So you had leaders from both the House and the Senate, both on the Republican side and the Democrat side, who reached an agreement on a bill that would fund the cost-sharing subsidies also for two years. It incorporated a few more reforms under the ACA. Either way, and this bill is not in legislative text, it is merely an agreement, but either way, either proposal is really going to face a steep odds in Congress. In fact, we don't even know if um, the Speaker Paul Ryan would bring it to the floor for a vote. So clearly some some deep, steep odds in getting it passed. Um but keep in mind that regardless of whether they pass or not, the focus of these bills is on stabilizing that individual market. It's not touching the group market. Still important for us because we want all markets to be stable, and, and ultimately we don't want to hear um, th that there's an, an unstable individual market that requires then um, some more government intervention. Uh, so that, that's where we are in terms of health reform as it exists currently. Mm. So before we move on to tax reform, if nothing happens to the ACA, if nothing changes, nothing passes, tell us one thing to watch for in 2018. Well, one thing to note is that there is that fee on healthcare providers and a 2.3% tax on the sale of medical devices like surgical equipment or MRI machine, and certainly those taxes will be passed on to the consumer. It will affect premium rates by how much, I don't know. And then you have to think of it two years later. We have still the Cadillac tax that's on the books. That has not been changed through any of the current tax proposals, the initial tax proposals by either the House or the Senate. And so when you start adding in these additional taxes, and we haven't done anything really to drive down the cost of insurance thus far, you're going to find more employers having difficulty avoiding that 40% excise tax on the cost of their high-cost health plans. Um, so with the prior taxes mentioned, and again, no relief, it's, it's just we're going to have to watch for it, some changes on the Cadillac tax. We certainly hope that this will change, and we will do podcasts in the future as we near the implementation of the Cadillac tax on what employers can do from a planned design perspective to try to address those issues. So on the topic of taxes, on to tax reform. Tell us what's floating in the proposals that affect group health plans. So this is where there is good news and bad news. The bad news is that the House and the Senate tax proposals have shifted away from the repeal of the ACA 
and they've shifted away from repealing the individual mandate, which I view as not good news. Some of you may uh, think it is good news. So um, we, we also may find that some conservatives in the House and the Senate will withhold support for the tax reform bill unless those provisions are included. I hope that we get something pushed through, and I hope that it doesn't get hung up on this issue. Um, but we may find that. Um, from a good news perspective, the tax reform bills, neither one of them, currently impact the tax treatment of the employer contributions to health plans. That has been what's considered a hot-button issue because it is the greatest tax expenditure. So it's a revenue driver if they were to eliminate this tax exemption. So we, we will watch as this unfolds when they start to need revenue, when they're finding that um, they can't make as many tax cuts as they want. We're going to still watch for this issue to be put in on later versions we're not hearing that it will, but again, it's, it's one of those hot-button issues that could be thrown in when they're in a position to need to drive revenue. Also, um, we didn't find that from a, a bad news perspective, they did not touch any of the onerous taxes in the ACA right now, including the Cadillac tax, which we just mentioned. Um, and then some other bad news is there is currently um, an elimination of the tax exclusion for employer-provided dependent care assistance program, the adoption assistance program, moving expense reimbursement, and tuition reimbursement. So if this goes through, the employees would have to include these benefits or reimbursements in their gross income for tax purposes. So again, I mentioned that the good news with regard to the tax treatment of employer contributions. That extends to 401k contributions as well. As you probably heard in the news, they were looking at limiting the, the tax exemption for those contributions, and that was ultimately uh, taken out of both the Senate and the House bill. So on both of these issues, again, we'll just watch as this evolves and, and goes into conference committee to hopefully that neither one will be uh, put back in the proposals when, again, they're trying to drive revenue to support their tax changes. And in terms of the, there are other changes to retirement plans, which we won't address today. In fact, I think what we'll do is bring in our specialist, Kristen Bellot, on a future podcast and have her speak to each of those retirement plan and executive plan issues that are being changed under uh, the, the various tax proposals. Yeah, including, uh, or I should say continuing the uh, employer exclusion for group health plans was a good thing, but I think some people saw that decap come out of nowhere, the dependent, flexible spending account. Um, so we'll continue to watch that. Anything else we want to discuss today? Well, I did want to mention some recent state races and the exit polling um, that were associated with those because it's interesting and it could be instructive for what's to come. So in Virginia, the exit polls show that health was the top issue in the Virginia race, even though when they looked at the factors that drove the election results, it, it was one of many. But most voters who chose the health care as their top issue in Virginia also voted for uh, Ralph Northam, who beat Ed Gillespie, and he's the Democrat. And so it could be signaling that Democrats may be able to campaign on health care and that the ACA um, uh, non-repeal, I guess I could say, in upcoming elections. And then as you turn to Maine, there was a vote on Medicaid expansion that had a different story as well. So those Maine voters cast their ballots on a specific referendum to expand the Medicaid program in their state, and it won resoundingly. So again, this will likely have a practical impact on what happened next, including the appetite for ACA repeal, for cutting Medicaid to pay for other tax cuts, for example, under our, our the tax proposals that are there currently. And I think it speaks to a lesson learned um, back in the repeal and replace 
debate that Medicaid and uh, Medicaid expansion are far more popular than it seems like the Republicans think they are, largely because Medicaid now covers 74 million Americans, and it matters uh, to a broad cross-section of American people. So we will watch how other state races play out and the implications it could have on a national level. So for now, it seems business as usual with no immediate changes, but there are certainly, uh, there's certainly a lot of potential for change on the horizon. Uh, keeps things interesting for us. Until next time. It's a wrap. Thanks again, Jill. Thank you. Bye-bye.